Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 17 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show in which we take you back through all of history and find you some truly wonderful examples of human stupidity, mistakes, and idiocy, and then give you lessons so that you can learn from them Never repeat those mistakes again, but who are we kidding? We're humans. We like mistakes. In fact, so much so that it can almost become an addiction, which we will talk about with one of our people later on. But joining me as ever is my amazing co-host and future co-creator of something very interesting that we both got on the horizon. Derek, how are you doing, my man? I'm doing good. I've just mm-hmm. been hanging out and relaxing, you know? Like yeah. You, like I'm retired, only not. <laughs> Oh man, wouldn't it? I, this is. I think it sounds weird because I do enjoy work and I enjoy creative work and I do the stuff we do. But I kind of, I think, um, I would like to be at a stage where I can get paid the most amount of money for doing as little amount as work. I mean, that might be a generational thing where people say, oh, "Fucking millennials, no growth or whatever." <laughs> but like, I th- I feel like um, uh, I could put in uh, maximum effort for a small amount of time and get maximum output. You know, that's that's my ideal scenario. That's as close as I can get to retirement, I think, at this stage. I think if I could get to the point where I was voice acting and writing and audio mm. editing as my job, yeah, I don't have a problem working 16 hours a day, and it feels like sure. I'm retired. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then, like, you know, I feel there's something about the drudgery, potentially, of, of a nine-to-five where you're sort of like, I'm doing this. And I'm making good money, but like, mm, I don't really feel it. I can fully, I, I mean, I know multiple examples from like my life, people I knew who were just like, I'm here to collect a paycheck. And I think mm. at a certain point in your life, you decide, right, that's not for me anymore. And, you know, I'm very lucky that I have a great number of passions in the side projects and main job that I do. Um, doesn't earn me a huge amount of money, but it earns me enough so that I can pay a mortgage and just about afford food. Probably not heating. Just about in the UK. Just about, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, speaking of which, uh, um, yeah, the UK is facing four thousand pounds a year fuel bills right now, which is just uh, for Americans that's like four thousand five hundred dollars a year. I don't. How much do you guys pay for like heating and gas over there for like a typical family home? Um, well, see, I don't. We. We don't necessarily have gas everywhere here. Right, so like sure. I have all electric. Um, right, okay. So heat and air. Okay. But through the summer, my heat or my heat, my air conditioning bill, my electric bill in the summer is around three hundred, three hundred and twenty five dollars a month. Oh shit. So that's so yeah, so for four months of the year, that's that's quite a fair chunk of change right there. That's yeah. Like, that's like nearly thirteen hundred dollars. I think wow. you just kind of get used to mm-hmm. that in arizona i don't know it, they've slowly raised everything up so damn high on mm. me well i wasn't paying attention that now i'm like god i haven't been on vacation in like three years how did i used to have money to do that shit? <laughs> because we weren't being squeezed so tightly by mega corporations <laughs> uh yeah we've got we've got a thing in the uk at the moment i mean i'm in a situation where i've done a significant amount of improvements on this is why i have no money i've done a lot of work on my house you know, we bought the thing, we completely redecorated it, gutted it, and then we put in triple glazed windows, and then we put in a new boiler, and then we put in new radiators in every single room, and we're like, we're going to be nice and toasty in the winter, and then the fuel bills have just like gone up by 80%. So we're at the stage yeah. now where I, I'm saying to my wife, maybe we take out a loan and buy a log burner for the living room, which would heat up the rooms upstairs, 
and then we can put the radiators down because it's like in the long run it would be cheaper to buy and install a log burner and buy wood um and chop that up than pay like 400 pounds a month for, for heating and gas and stuff yeah. so yeah um i think about something like 190 pounds worth of logs in this country will pretty much see you through the winter so maybe a little bit more so you know your fuel bills will be a lot less and you know with a say a five thousand pound outlay thing pays for itself in like a couple of years so yeah i want yeah. i want to get all on wind and solar and yeah. just run electric heat yeah i'm i'm in the similar way the thing is the company we go for for our energy bills are um entirely um carbon neutral so all of their stuff is renewable energy and they're carbon neutral. The problem is, is that every electricity company in this country has their price tied to the gas companies. So they're the ones oh. that dictate the price of electricity. So people who, energy companies that don't use gas are being screwed over because they have to do certain aspects of their, their work the way, you know? So anyway, we won't get into the politics <laughs> of the, the, the Western Hemisphere's living crisis at the moment, but yeah, it's it's not a great situation with winter around the corner. So uh, if anyone wants to come out, hang out in my house, it'll be reasonably toasty and I won't even charge you. You can come out, spend a few hours, we'll have a chat and then you can go home and you'll save yourself a little bit on your energy bills. Maybe. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, now that we've got to that, we've also got um, another thing on the horizon. We don't want to announce it just yet, but myself and Derek uh, are amongst a group of various artists and creators who are working on a series that involves a lot of people who have been involved in the analog horror space. So that's things like the Mandela catalog and uh, the Walton files and obviously the monument mythos with my connection and, and a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, there's, there's something on the horizon and uh, it's very exciting. Wow. It seems like it's going to be interesting. I'm excited yeah. to see if I can figure it out. <laughs> I think, I think so. I think the great thing is that uh, the, the whole point of the project is that it gives anyone, and I, I will be including multiple people, you know, uh, multiple creators and non-creators, like giving them an opportunity in a forum to tell stories that they've always wanted to tell. A one-off story, if you can kind of express it, then we, you know, you can create it with our group of people and then we kind of split the profits evenly. But basically, it's an opportunity to tell any story you've ever wanted to tell in a, an appropriate format. So really, it's about the idea not necessarily about like if it fits into this thing or that thing as, as long as it's a good idea it'll fit anyway taking it out of the boxes yes no well there there are boxes but no structured boxes anyway so anyway um now that we've covered that let's get back to the main <laughs> thing i had derek who is your idiot for this episode um well see we were just talking about being something uh being part of something bigger than ourselves and i think it's safe to say that at one point in all of our lives we find ourselves wanting to belong to something bigger than ourselves yeah I some people agree. go to military service other people join religions and cults and this dude just he gets involved with the mafia oh why not well, why not <laughs> yeah it's More a cult with a really good menu with all the italian food so so there you, go. <laughs> there you go. I never looked at it that way, but yeah, yeah. it's that's that is legit explanation for the mafia. <laughs> a cult with good food. Yeah. Cult with great food. All those meatballs and pasta dishes. Oh my god, delicious. Sign so anyway, up. this <laughs> this this dude's uh associated with the Chicago outfit. And I say he's associated because he was never a fully made member. Right. And I'll dive was into that why. Because of the 
bloodlines thing yeah okay sorry. it wasn't bloodlines oh that's interesting it's usually yeah. that's the thing right usually Guilt. yeah irish or jewish heritage mixed in there and then they can't be made you know if sure. if everything i learned from watching goodfellas and <laughs> goodfellas in casino is exactly how it works. i was going off <laughs> like, so, i'm going off scorsese films i don't mind it's the only i i just assume that's how it is yeah seems fair anyway yeah, exactly so the Chicago outfit is also known as the outfit, Chicago Mafia, the Chicago Mob, the Chicago fr Crime Family, Southside Gang, or the organization. Right. It started in 1910 and might still operate today. Maybe. Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but the guy that I'm focusing on um, is considered by at least one FBI agent and uh, uh, authority on the source as one of the worst torture murderers in the history of the United States. Oh, so it. deranged and sadistic that even the mob didn't want to have him as a full member, but they still used him for loan sharking and enforcement. And of course, you know, torture and murder of people when it needed to get done. And then they gave him a really cool nickname, Mad Sam. So oh, nice. Here we go. Uh, he's born Samuel DeStefano Jr. in Strader, Illinois, on September 13th, 1909. Like people involved with the mafia at the time, his parents were Italian immigrants. And shortly after Sam's birth, his father moved the family out to Herring, Illinois, or Heron, okay. Illinois, where he was a coal miner. They were only there briefly because uh, labor-related turmoil uh, popped up around the Heron Massacre, which was a coal miner strike that led to three miners and 20 non-union miners being killed, which Oof. included strike breakers and the superintendent of the mine. Wow. So early on, kids exposed to like insane amounts of violence pretty close to him. His dad decides then to move him back to Chicago's Little Italy. And it's not sure if his father was involved with the Chicago outfit or not, or if he just kind of was associated, but he ended up dying mm. of natural causes of old age, running a grocery store and, and doing real estate. But okay. his son, Samuel Jr., Mad Sam, didn't uh, didn't go that way. He went the less legitimate way. And there's not a lot known about his early life, but the earliest records are just before his 17th birthday on September 12th, 1926, when he was arrested by the Chicago police as a fugitive and then returned to Niles, Illinois, because he had broken out of jail there. I don't know why he was in jail, but he was in jail and he got out and he ran away and got arrested. And that's the first real records of him outside okay. of birth records. Wow. He started to get involved with gang activity in the summer of 1927 when a whole bunch of uh, West Side gang members showed up and threatened violence and craziness against a police sergeant that had arrested what? Sam and his oh, friend. wow. Normally, you'd think that they'd... I feel like all of the depictions of the mob I've seen, that they deal with things in involving the police a little bit more delicately than that. And they're usually a little bit like either they're, the police are in their pocket or they're like, you know, come on, this he's a good guy. Go lighten him, blah, blah, blah. But no, straight up threatening police. Right. And they... They well, it was prior to like the more civilized mafia, right? More Cosa oh, yeah, Nostra. Sure, this is yeah. 27, so it was when mm. they were like Capone, bootlegger right. gangs, yes, exactly. Yeah. And Capone actually brings this dude 
into the Chicago outfit because Al Capone is the one that ran that course. Um, in November of 1927, Chicago police arrested Sam again and another gang member on the charges of kidnapping and rape of a 17-year-old girl. Oh, shit. Now, he was found guilty of the rape but was only sentenced to three years because wow. apparently the police arrived before he actually raped her, which is before. fucked up. Yeah, so they, so they stopped him. I don't know. It, it, this, it seems like he got charged with the crime because he intended to commit it. Oh, either way, he's a dick and he deserved it. Oh, and but he I only mean, got yeah. three years. But so. so, so it was an intent to. Uh, I got, uh, essentially, yeah. That, I mean, that's that would be a very difficult thing to prove, I guess, in those days, like without like logs or documentation. I guess like no DNA man, back in the day, but yeah, but they, they just happen to be that that's, that's okay. Whole minefield there, but wow, that's, that's really interesting. Right. And he's, he's 18, almost 19 at the time. Okay. All right. So I, I don't know. He, he spends three years in, in jail and mm -hmm. in 1930, when he gets let out, he joins up with the infamous 42 gang, oh, which, okay. That's the gang that that brought us uh, characters like Salvatore Giancana, mm -hmm. who may or may not have been involved with the death of JFK. Yeah, that's um, that's the big rumor with that one. Now, um, it was actually, like I said, Al Capone's bootlegging and gambling operation that brought Sam the Mad Mad Sam DeStefano into association with the outfit. They hired that twenty uh, forty two gang to serve as beer runners and fences for various stolen goods and burglaries that they were involved with and kind of used them like a farm team, I guess. Okay. They, yeah. they were calling people up from, from that gang and making them made men, not right. this guy, but others. <laughs> yes. So in 1932, Sam was shot and wounded by police during a grocery store robbery, probably not his dad's. Um, <laughs> And the only reason they know he was shot is because he showed up later to a Chicago hospital on the west side with bullet wounds and was like, nah, I don't know where they came from. Ah, it just it <laughs> fell in my leg. These things happen. Uh, in 1933, he got his first taste of the big time when he was convicted in connection with a Wisconsin bank robbery. And the judge right. sentenced him to 40 years. Oh, shit. So yeah. He could have been done right there, but he wasn't. Because mm -hmm. after only 11 years, the Wisconsin governor let him out. And after he was released, he got a job at a printing plant for some reason. Okay. Where they caught his ass making counterfeit sugar ration stamps and sent his ass back to prison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, of all the things to be caught uh, forging, you know, sugar rations. Holy shit. I mean, uh, this is kind of into the Great Depression now. The sure. 30s. Well, I guess yeah, no, 11 yeah, years probably. from the 30s to so 40. So oh, it's wow, World okay. War Two. Right yeah, about. yeah. So it's it's rationing to do with that. Yeah, I, I know you guys um, also had rationing. It's a big thing over in this country. The rationing in World War Two. You know, people were given very small amounts, and uh, the, there was a whole campaign about dig for victory. So people just basically turned whatever small backyards they had, or back sometimes like no bigger than my third bedroom. They just basically covered it in soil and grew as many plants as they could. Um, that's yeah yeah my we grandmother tells me stories about having meat once a week um for basically t like 12 13 years not the way you like want to become a vegetarian 
No, exactly. It was force forcible vegetarianism. Uh, but yeah, one of her favorite meals was boiled onion with melted cheese on top. Ew. Yeah, that's how bad the rationing got. That's tough. Yeah, I'm gonna right. starve to death if we have to do that again. Yeah, I hope no war too. breaks out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just if you're gonna break out war, give us all MSG and we'll be fine. All right. So <laughs> flavor enhancer. That's what we need. So sorry. Continue uh, with the anyway. So thing. this guy gets busted for uh, counterfeit sugar ration stamps and goes back to prison. They send him to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. Oh. And that's where he gets even tighter with outfit members who help him upon his release get a job in civil service. As, what? Yeah. <laughs> As a garbage dump foreman. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, okay, exactly. Not when you said civil a... service, uh, like, I was immediately like, oh, like government advisory? Really? This guy? Like, Oh, no, he's, he's like a garbage guy. He's like the leader of the, the group. Okay, that's fine. But still connections with the mob there. You know, with yep. the unions and stuff, for sure. And it's the early workings of how that's going to come out. And by mm. the 1950s, Sam became one of the most well-known political fixers in Chicago. Shit. He was able to set it up pretty quick because apparently he had cash left over from the Wisconsin bank robbery somehow. Oh. Stashed away, which <laughs> is pretty dope, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. So he used that to invest into Chicago real estate, where he bought a 24-suite apartment building. Ooh. And he used that rent money to bribe and pay off local police and politicians and officials to get things done. So right. okay. from there, he becomes the most successful Chicago fixer, and he's bribing judges and law enforcement. And he bragged that there wasn't any case that he couldn't fix. Allegedly, he once fixed a murder case for $20,000. Whew, that's a so, lot of money back then. My he's, God. He's making massive amounts of money on his loan sharking and fixing. And it, it opened him up to um, kind of a, a weird sort of situation where he would buy other people's debts to fix their problems and they end up owing him a favor to fix sure. it. And then he puts him on the juice. It actually comes around with the um, high VIG interest. Yeah, right. And so they've got nothing, no other option but to do what he says. And then, yeah, and they, exactly. And by the by the '60s, he was like the outfit's head loan shark, right. and his victims. I say victims because you'll see uh, they included politicians, lawyers, and other small-time criminals. And he charged them twenty to twenty-five percent a week on their their debt, and he started to take on high-risk debtors like businessmen who had already defaulted on loans with regular organizations or drug addicts, and then he would use them once they became delinquent to teach others a lesson to pay. So right, yeah, he actually, I guess looked forward to dealing with the delinquents and he mm -hmm. would bring them to a soundproof torture chamber that he built in his basement. Jeez. Where like, other gangsters describe him as sadistic and actually foaming at the mouth while torturing his victims. And okay. from time to time, he would kill debtors that owed him small sums so that the people that owed him a whole bunch of money would pay. Wow, that's... um. <laughs> that's Super a similar creepy. tactic to the Orson Welles 
hire an extra actor so that on the first day of filming you can fire them so that everyone knows you're the boss oh. technique uh, yeah, yeah but... that was that was an old tactic in old hollywood where someone would usually get fired in the first couple of days like really like really publicly so right. on the set they'd be like oh my what are you gonna do fire me yeah you're goddamn right i'm gonna fire you and then they get fired and like get out that fuck and they like, <laughs> drag them out and all this. it's all an act to show that the director was the leader in the auteur and you can't fuck with the director and do what he says and stay on budget and let's keep on time this is a little bit of an extreme version of that I yeah think. holy shit yeah he just killed him yeah just straight publicly up, kind of and you'd think oh shit well he's gonna go back to prison pretty quick right he's got everyone in his pocket well that and he also had a really unusual practice where he would uh make them give him gifts provide them with presents like a gold watch with his name engraved on the back. So if they ever complained to the police that he was going to do something to him, he could use the watch or the gifts as proof of how close he was with him and why he would right. never harm him. Yeah. That's actually <laughs> very smart. Uh, yeah. Evil, but very, very smart. Man. He's a straight up sociopath. Yeah. Definitely. So, Jesus. Um, under normal circumstances, even the outfit would have distanced himself from Destefano from for his statistic, blah, 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 sadistic, irrational behavior. But he earned a lot of money for him. I he bet. was such a successful earner that even Giancana and Tony Accardo uh, invested some of their own money in his loan sharking operations. So he had high up people backing him, but not that much. <laughs> yeah, it's he's he's useful, but he's never going to be one of us because he's too too dangerous to be one of us, and eventually he's going to get caught. Sort of thinking, I'd imagine. Yes. Yeah. In November 1963, he had a violent argument with Leo Foreman, who was a real estate agent at one of his. Um, oh, he was a real estate agent and one of his juice collectors, right? <laughs> his loan collectors. Sure. Um. Apparently, Sam was physically ejected from Foreman's office, and then Foreman went into hiding. Wow. Later on, uh, DeStefano and, uh, you might know this name, Anthony's Bellatro? Basically, yeah. That's the guy that was played by Joe Pesci in Casino. Oh, shit. The whole wow. in the wall Okay, game. yeah, definitely recognize that name now. Wow, he met quite the violent end. Jesus. Yes. Well, <laughs> this whole crew... And because Anthony uh, Spilatro was actually brought in by Mad Sam DeStefano into right. the, the the mix. Right. Anyway, so they meet up with Foreman and tell him that Sam wants to let bygones be bygones and everything's going to be okay. So Leo Foreman's lured to Sam's brother's house and they whack him. Yeah, I don't know why you ever thought that was going to be. All right. Yeah, come over to my brother's house. We'll have some wine. We'll chat. Well, everything will be fine. Like, it, it, if you know anything about mafia culture, even at the time, I think most people would have spotted the trap a mile away. Right? Jesus. I think the nicer they are to you, yeah. the more nervous I would be. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Um, so, in another incident with a collector of his, uh, Peter Capaletti, he. Uh, fled Chicago with 25000 from a loan shark or uh, from one of the victims. And then Sam had his people locate him in Wisconsin and bring him back to Chicago right. where he chained him to a radiator, 
and tortured him for three days. And while a a banquet was going on in the other room, this Capaletti's secretly being tortured in the back of that restaurant, saying stuff like, kill me, please, I'm on fire. And DeStefano replies, then we need to put out the fire and has him dragged out into the restaurant in the banquet banquet area, into the dining area, and forces the man's family to urinate on him. Whoa, the fuck? The family then quickly paid back the loan or the stolen money that Peter had absconded with. Jesus. So that's the type of dude that Sam DeStefano was. And in 1965, he was convicted of conspiracy and sentenced to three to five years in prison. Um, on February 2nd, 1972, he was sentenced to three and one half year in prison for threatening the life of a witness. Right. And then um, convicted for that Leo Foreman murder. Wow. Okay. And, and, and in why. 19, the later in 1972, he's indicted on federal firearms charges and stuff starts going batshit in a way. Yeah. Um, he started to have really bizarre behavior and he demanded to represent himself in court. Cool. He, he was dressed in pajamas, shouting through bullhorns, just rambling right. incoherently. So he's trying and, to get an insanity defense thing going. Yeah. And then he's he's doing it at his trials and his at his court appearances, and the the outfit bosses are like, "Well, shit. <laughs> yeah. We just thought he was violent. Turns out yeah. he's batshit. He's absolutely insane. Yeah. So they were worried that he was going to jeopardize their defense and the defenses of some of his other crews. And mm-hmm. in a secret meeting of the Chicago bosses, they gave his own crew permission to kill him. On April 14th, 1973, he met with his brother and uh, Anthony Spilatro in the garage of a neighborhood home where when they entered the room, he turned around and was shot twice with a shotgun. It hit him in the chest and tore off part of his left arm. He was killed uh, uh, immediately. Sorry. Wow. Instantly. That's the word I was looking for. And nobody was ever charged with that murder. Yeah, I'm not surprised. They probably cleaned that scene up really carefully or set it on fire. Yeah, and then had his family put it out with their urine. Jesus. Yeah, just just the normal way you do. Yeah. So not so much an idiot, just a crazy sociopath, psychopathic killer. Yeah. Holy shit. And that is Um, uh, Mad Sam DeStefano. Mad Sam DeStefano. It um, reminds me a little bit, and you do, I mean, obviously, anyone who's involved in murder for hire organized murder you know crime is a a whole thing but like murder for an organization takes a very specific personality you know and you know people who kill someone not that i know too many but like people you know examples from the real world uh someone like scott hall i go back to wrestlers all the time scott hall was a, a nightclub bouncer Guy shows up to nightclub for revenge, being ejected with a gun. Scott Hall wrestles into the ground, wrestles the gun away from him. The gun goes off. Guy dies. And Scott Hall's rest of his life is just, you know, series of alcohol and drug related issues, you know, spotted with his wrestling career. So, you know, a a murder or a killing, and it definitely wasn't murder because he was defending himself and the people outside the nightclub. Like, 
it it changes people you know when you, when something like that happens but um you look at the history of the mafia and there are a few examples in there particularly famous examples this guy i was thinking also about um uh the hitman uh, what was his name the ice man the ice pick ice pick yeah what was his name they made a film about him with uh uh, really tall actor michael michael yeah. shannon uh yeah and it, they were they just pulled up and it's a homeless person in an alley and they were like just go and kill that guy and he's like really all right yeah okay. and uh yeah there's like mafia hitmen there's there's a very specific thing they're not considered in the same light as like psychopaths so you kind of you richard dahmer you know all right. of these kind of it's business yeah, it's like it's for some reason it seems better to mainstream society because it's part of the mafia thing. But you know, these people are psychopaths. There's there's oh, no yeah. ways about it. They just happen to be sanctioned by this weird body that is you know <laughs> trying to make as much money as possible and exploit people. Um, yeah, he kind of. I mean, it, it, it's hard to judge him on an, an idiotic scale. More of a kind of a really nasty human being scale yes. because that's what he was he was a psychopath sociopath a murderer and probably had severe mental health or mental illness issues really yes. because like i mean that whole defense thing pajamas i'm sure it, the majority of it was an act but there's there's an element of truth in that and he is unhinged yet somehow he still managed to make all that money so for the murders um yeah you can't go low with this because he killed a lot of people and he was like sadistic in the oh, way yeah. some of these people were tortured and killed and stuff. So I've I've got to go like eighty eight with that yes. purely based on the level of the violence. Um, I wouldn't really say he was like mass murder level, uh, but certainly like the lack of conscious conscious in like in his actions, icky murders. Conscious, yeah, they were really gross. Yeah, and the exploitation and stuff. So yeah, I'm happy to give him an eighty eight because. I mean, as glamorous as films and history has made the mafia look, there is so much darkness there. It's so violent. And it, I mean, yeah. I guess in a way, keeping that away from the public, but they don't really, because if they did, you wouldn't know that that shit happened. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are examples in history where violence has been covered up so effectively that the truth doesn't come out for, for decades or centuries, you know, but. The Mafia are not very good at operating in the shadows because there are still, like, assassinations and, and stuff that people are like, oh, that, that is a really suspicious death. And, you know, it does still happen to this day. You know, there are still underworld figures who will do stuff like that. Gangs, gang warfare. There's a reason we call it gang warfare because that shit spills out onto the streets. Yes. And people well, get hurt in the crossfire. God, even, like, Sammy the Bull came out here... And went back to his old ways and started getting involved with like uh, gang members like, mm -hmm. in the Phoenix area. So, yeah, I mean, I can tell you a story, multiple stories from the West Midlands of, of England. Like, there was a, a nightclub I used to frequent when I was in university here with some of my friends, and we went to this nightclub and it was called Decadence. And it was, Ooh. it was very, <laughs> oh, yeah, like, and it was, it was down one of these streets where like, it was either a takeaway or an adult bookstore. So it was um, like, you know, like I think they owned a lot of the stuff on the block. And the nightclub, you went in and it was just immaculately laid out. Really interesting designs. There were like grottos and different lighting areas. And the drink was incredible. The, the alcohol was 
suspiciously cheap. Uh, <laughs> it fell off a truck. It fell off a truck, and like stuff, it's weird stuff would happen in there. Like one of my friends got her phone stolen, but like literally, like like that, like it was gone within about ten seconds, and um, she called it, and someone answered, and it was definitely still inside the bar. And oh. then there was like someone got offed behind the nightclub, Ooh. um, in in quite execution style. And as a result of that, the police raided it a few months later and shut it down. And they found like masses of cash, like in the walls, just random shit like that. Just, just dodgy stuff. And you know, it's not on the up and up when you keep your cash in the walls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I swear it's just insulation. Uh, oh. So yeah. Um, hey, oh, hi hello. from Sweden. Verbery. So hi, hi, hi from Sweden. Very nice. How do loan sharks keep their paperwork from getting soggy in the water? That's a good joke, Toastazoid. Very nicely done. Um, do they keep good yeah, paperwork? I th I'd imagine they don't. I'd imagine it's like written on the back of their hand and then washed off. Or <laughs> I'd imagine those ledgers are very carefully stored. But yeah, I, I think organized crime. I mean, obviously, it has influenced society in multiple different ways. Some good. It's uncovered like corrupt officials and stuff sometimes because they've squealed and yeah. told the world about this politician or this, you know, whatever it might be, Tammany Hall official. But yeah, you know, throughout history, the large effect of, of organized crime has been like 99% negative. Yeah. So. I'm happy well, and, to say that. and I know he's not like a super duper idiot, but I just wanted to talk about a mobster. So yeah, yeah, I think um, <laughs> it's sometimes because I mean we're we're doing history's greatest idiots, um, and sometimes we do talk about actual idiots, but sometimes we find characters who um, are so interesting that actually we kind of need to cover them, even if they're more on the evil side of things or on the unlucky side of things or really lucky side of things so it, it's it's also about the characters and actually getting on to my person um my person is definitely a character and definitely an idiot but also kind of a genius and okay. we'll go into that now i'd like to tell you um we're we'll, we'll going back into sports i do sometimes cover some obscure sports figures which probably don't always appeal to my non uh non-english or european audience but i would like to tell you the life story of Paul Gazza Gascoigne, football's idiot savant. Um, English is like my third language, excuse the spelling. Verbally, yeah, verbally, you're doing really great. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so Paul John Gascoigne, who most people know simply as Gazza, was born in Gateshead, County Durham, which is over the river from Newcastle. So it's like uh, the northeast of England. Uh, uh, he was born on the 27th of May, 1967. So the northeast of England, uh, things you should know about that, it's bitterly cold up there because it's basically on the border with Scotland. Um, there haven't been many jobs for a very long time because that part of the world, they used to build a lot of ships, they used to do coal mining, and Thatcher destroyed both of those industries. So fuck you, Margaret Thatcher. Very glad you're burning in hell. Um, but yeah, she basically, yeah, I, I don't like the woman. Um, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Uh, she decimated the, the employment prospects of generations of people in the Northeast and she is not pro popular up there or the Tories aren't as well. So, um, the people themselves in the Northeast, because uh, I went to university in Newcastle, my first university degree is, uh, is from Newcastle. The people are beautiful and wonderful and warm. They're just some of the most friendly people that you will sit down on like a bus and they'll just say oh, how are you doing mate are you all right like how's your baby <laughs> and stuff and they're just the friendliest people 
Um, okay. It, yeah. Um, a lot of life stuff up there. Um, even to this day, actually, a lot of real estate and food and activities very, very cheap up there. It's a very uh, cheap part of the world in terms of cost of living and um, really beautiful countryside. So places like County Durham, Northumberland, Northumberland, which features very heavily in English history, especially like pre invasion by the normans um really beautiful uh, okay. countryside so yeah northumberland was like the, the seat of power back in the day before john the, the, the what's his name thingy the bastards uh, what episode was the, that the conqueror yeah so what's that we did him right you did um we did john yes we did do john but he was a little bit after henry the conqueror Okay. William the Conqueror. William the Conqueror. I always get that mixed up. Sorry. Um, so yeah, the Northeast, really beautiful place. Also, kind of amazing and insane nightclub, uh, nightlife stuff there. So if you go out in the town in Newcastle, something will happen. It might not be good. Um, it might not be bad, but something will happen. Something will happen. Something will happen. <laughs> It'll change your life, either for the good or the bad. But and that's every weekend. Dude, anyway, there you go. There's there is the uh, the new slogan for them for their tourism. Yeah, Newcastle. Anything, something something will, happen. will happen. It might not be good, but something will happen. Um, so back to Paul Gascoigne. His father John, 1946 to 2018, was a hod carrier. And I should tell you all that a hod carrier is someone who would put stacks of like 20 to 30 bricks on like a wooden board in a V-shape. So they'd have a V-shape and they'd slide the bricks on and pile them up. And then that that V-shaped wooden uh, thing would be attached to a, a metal pole. And they put the pole over their shoulder and they'd carry these bricks to the top of a construction site or walk up a scaffold. Yeah. I, mean, I know. It's so stupid. You have pulleys. Pulleys have been a thing for hundreds of years. Fucking use them. But no, they had men walking up ladders with like, I don't know, maybe like 200 pounds worth of bricks on their back. Oh, just, man. Yeah. So that's, that's a job. That's a fucking hard job right there. <laughs> and of course, again, northeast. So it's usually either raining or snowing or sleeting or like approaching freezing. So yeah, fucking hard working people up there. Um, and his mother, Carol, uh, worked in a factory. So um, okay. basically like real salt of the earth people up there. Um, he was named Paul John Gascoigne in tribute to Paul McCartney and John Lennon of the Beatles because his dad was a huge Beatles fan. Nice. Um, he attended Brecon Beds Junior High School and then Heathfield Senior High School, both in the Lowfell area of Gateshead. He was noticed by football scouts while playing for Gateshead Boys, though failed to impress in the trial at Ipswich Town, which is actually in the uh, the West Country. And uh, at the time, Ipswich Town were a very, very big club. They're not so much now, but yeah, they were a big thing, a uh, big part of the scene at the time. Uh, further trials at Middlesbrough and Southampton also proved unsuccessful before the team he supported, Newcastle United, signed him as a schoolboy in 1980. Former Ipswich and Newcastle scout Charlie Woods has claimed Ipswich were keen on signing Gascoigne, but once Newcastle got wind, they quickly signed him up and he was like, yeah, I want to go and play for my my childhood club, you know, so. That seems uh, legit. Yeah, it was pretty straightforward. It, it was uh, he, he loved his club and he wanted to play for them. Didn't get paid much, but we'll get we'll get to that now. Um, Gascoigne frequently got into trouble with his friend. You, you're going to hear a lot about this guy, Jimmy. <laughs> his his name his mate's name was Jimmy Five Bellies Gardener. So um, five, bellies. five bellies because he was so big. 
Okay. The dude, the dude could eat. Um, and Newcastle chairman Sam Seymour Jr. described Gascoigne as George Best without brains, which is a fairly accurate description. George Best is um, considered like maybe top five most skill, most skillful players in football history. Um, but um, he also had a huge drinking problem. But George Best was kind of cultured. He was the first like mega star in football. Like even before Pele became a big thing in the states, George Best was like a bit like the Beatles. Like he was a bit sexy. Women wanted him. He was very skillful. He was a bit of a playboy. Now that shit did not exist before George Best came along. Unfortunately, Gascoigne was like that, only without any of the culture. Ah. And he was just like a, a just a lout, like a lout. lout. <laughs> but also, um, George Best was kind of skillful, very like swift and intelligent. Gascoigne was that, but he was also incredibly physically aggressive. Okay, right? so imagine like the most skillful player you can think of, who will also headbutt someone. So, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. Kind of a perfect footballer. Until Gascoigne was successful on the football field, his childhood was marked by instability and tragedy. Initially, his family lived in a single upstairs room in a council house with a shared bathroom and moved several times during his early life, which, you know, in the Northeast, that's that's not a good life. You know, more than four people in a room and you have to share the bathroom with other people. It's, that's really bad. Probably drafty uh, and cold. Oh, yeah. Like single pane windows. Really, yeah. really cold. And, and my dad was, I was talking to my dad the other night, and he was like, just want to remind you that back in my day, we used to have condensation on the inside of the windows when we woke up in the morning. I was like, yes, yeah, I know. This country mm. should really have moved on for the last 60, 70 <laughs> years, but apparently we haven't. Uh, when he was 10, Gascoigne witnessed the death of Stephen Spragan, a friend's younger brother who was killed in a traffic collision in front of him. Ouch. Um, yeah, that'll mess yeah, you up. That will mess you, mess you up. And around this time, his father began to experience quite violent seizures. So um, his That's father be basically... Scary too. Yeah, and like his dad had to stop working. His mum had to kind of try and support the family, which was proving increasingly difficult because, you know, factory jobs pay virtually nothing, especially in the Northeast. And as a result of the stress of these two incidents, Gascoigne began to develop obsessive compulsive disorder and twitches and was taken into therapy but soon quit the therapy sessions after his father expressed doubts over the treatment methods that's not good yeah <laughs> early signs of mental health issues when you are so stressed that you begin to develop like physiological responses to oh, that yeah. stress that's yeah that's really not bad. good at all and then when but, your dad's like, ah, it's but don't don't do don't do that. I'm doing a Lancashire accent now. Don't go don't listen to them, son. It's not gonna work. So that's well, that's, that's it, is that the what happened, or were they like giving him electroshock therapy and he was like, I Don't do that. I don't I don't <laughs> think it was electroshock therapy. I think it was like it was kind of new age approach. So it was like, like talking, talking about therapies. It. Yeah. So they, they talk to him, like, ah lad, you don't need to be talking to anyone about your problems. Like, yeah, bottle you know, that just, shit up and yeah, just get go down the pub, <laughs> talk to someone there. Um, so, uh, Gascoigne developed an addiction to slot machines to cope with Been the there. things that were going on in his life. Yeah, that's that's not a good thing to be addicted to. Uh, frequently spending all of his money on them, and then as a result of that, he began starting to shoplift to fund his addiction. Ooh. 
Uh, yeah, he experienced further tragedy when another friend whom he'd uh, encouraged to join Newcastle United from Middlesbrough died whilst he was working for Paul Gascoigne's uncle on a building site. That's a lot of death early so on in life. Two friends that died. Two friends. Yeah, okay. his dad's now got some sort of serious illness going on. He's got an addiction. He's not, e he's not even 18 yet. He's addicted to gambling and he's developed uh, compulsive twitches and obsessions. That's okay. really not good. That is a rough um, start. That is a very rough start. Gascoigne decided to um, provide financially for his entire family, his parents and two sisters, as he saw professional football as a way of earning more money than the rest of the family was capable of in the rest of their entire lives, which is true. And this, this happens a lot in sports. You know, a lot of people look after their families after a certain amount of time. Um, he enjoyed football and later wrote, I didn't have twitches or have to worry about death when I was playing football. That is fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's a common thing when you can get into something that you're really into and all of it else just melts away and you get to be just yeah. normal. I, I completely agree. I, I have similar th things in my life, but to be haunted by the specter of death so much that you throw yourself into football, it's like you need to get help for that. Um, yeah. He was signed on as an apprentice at Newcastle on his 16th birthday. Gascoigne regularly ate Mars bars and other junk food instead of breakfast most days. His diet was terrible. Um, he did not eat like an athlete. Even back in the 80s, they had uh, like diet regimes for people. Like, please don't drink before a game. Please don't eat refined sugar for breakfast. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> please yeah. don't eat Mars bars for the love of Christ. Uh, Newcastle manager and World Cup winning player Jack Charlton was not overly concerned as he believed the weight that Gascoigne had gained gave him extra strength on the football pitch and did not seem to slow him down. And that's true. Even after numerous injuries later into his career, Gascoigne was surprisingly fast for a man who was, let's say, stout. Let's, let's, let's use a word like that. Chubby has been thrown around. I think that's a bit harsh, but he was a big lad. Sometimes you know. that forward momentum can really get yeah. you going a little faster. I think it's like the early Babe Ruth stuff. It's like Babe Ruth was quite nimble in his early days, but he was a big dude. But that's, again, like you say, it's the momentum yeah. thing, isn't it? You know, when, when that train <laughs> gets moving, it's fucking hard to stop, you know? Um, he also noted that Gascoigne showed early signs of being gaff-prone and a bit of a prankster. Now, that's a fucking understatement. You'll get to that later. Charlton <laughs> warned, warned Gascoigne about his junk food diet and gave him two weeks to lose the extra weight. Gascoigne then trained for 10 days straight, wrapped in a bin bag. Ew. So, yeah, he was ah, doing that That'll early. dehydrate you. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll lose some water weight real quick. And it worked. Um, Gascoigne captained Newcastle's um, youth team to the FA Youth Cup in 1984-85 to and scored twice in the 4-1 victory over Watford at the, in the final at Vicarage Road. In the first leg of the final, they drew 0-0. Teammate, yeah, teammate Joe Allen stated that Newcastle were unusually poor in the first leg, but in the second leg, Gascoigne came alive and was instrumental in the victory. After the match, Jack Charlton told Gascoigne that he would join the first team the next day against Norwich. Gascoigne did travel to Norwich, though Charlton chose not to play him because he was fucked. Basically, he played the day before and he was just full of Mars bars. So, um, <laughs> it's a little sluggish. Yeah. I've got, I'm making my first team debut. I better get a good breakfast in. Just eat five Mars bars. Um, Gascoigne <laughs> made his first team debut as a substitute for George 
for George Riley in a 1-0 win over Queen's Park Rangers on the 13th of April 1985 at St. James's Park. Amazing stadium in the northeast of England. It's it's really quite spectacular. It's on top of a hill. It's really prominent, really quite amazing. Charlton later noted that Gascoigne's first team appearances under him were too brief to suggest he was more than a useful talent. That's Jack Charlton being a bit of a dick, to be honest. At the age of 18, Gascoigne signed a two-year contract, uh, £120 a week, at Newcastle, with the club also having a further two-year option clause. Now, even at the time, that's a low wage. Okay. But it's like his childhood club, and like he's still quite young. He's got promise, but he's not proven anything. So he's he was probably willing to stick it out because of those factors. But and also like he he never seems to be a guy who is like about the money um, at any point in his life because he's experienced the real lows, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So the... money is less important than happiness i think at this point and and then and that's the thing too you were saying like he felt like a normal person while he was playing so yeah money's exactly. secondary so, he just wants to play yeah just get him on the pitch and let him play right. um he scored his first goal at home to oxford united in a 3-0 victory on the 21st of september 1985 and claimed a further eight goals in the 1985 to 86 campaign Newcastle finished 11th in the first division that season, and at the end of it, Gascoigne was featured on the front cover of the Rothmans Football Yearbook, which, like, those, if you've got any of those lying around, UK listeners, those things are worth a fucking fortune. Sell them. My God, you'll be able to pay off a chunk of your mortgage. Um, <laughs> he scored five goals in 24 league games in the 86-87 season as the Magpies slipped to 17th place, three points above the relegation playoffs. In 1988, on the BBC programme Football Focus, Newcastle's then all-time top scorer, Jackie Milburn, stated that Gascoigne was the best player in the world. He wasn't, because Diego Maradona was still around and playing very, very well at this point, but he was definitely the best young player in the world. That is absolutely fair to say. In okay. uh, a 0-0 draw with Newcastle at Plough Lane in February 1988, Hardman and future actor in various films such as um, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and um, what was that other Guy Ritchie film that he followed uh, with that Brad Pitt was in? Um, um, I, I can't remember. Snatch. Snatch. Love yeah. that film. You like Dax? And, yes. <laughs> and also, um, you like Dax? It's <laughs> my favorite part. I love that. <laughs> and, and also, um, X Men 3, The Last Stand. He played on the juggernaut, bitch. That's oh. Vinnie Jones. Okay. Yes. Uh, Vinnie Jones was a professional footballer before he became an actor. Hardman and future actor Vinnie Jones singled Paul Gascoigne out for special attention. Um, okay. And in an incident that would become a much publicized photograph, Jones walked backwards towards Gascoigne while looking forwards to avoid suspicion, grabbed him by the genitals and squeezed down really hard, um, leaving Gascoigne to scream in agony. And when the referee turned around, he's like, well, I don't know, something wrong with him. His balls just hurt. So, yeah. yeah. If you Google, <laughs> if you Google an image, and I don't want to put it on screen because God knows we might get censored for it, but if you Google Paul Gascoigne, Vinnie Jones, you will see a picture of Vinnie Jones looking sternly ahead while squeezing Paul Gascoigne's nutsack and Gascoigne going like that. It's really, <laughs> they're best friends now, so it's okay. like they've laughed it off because they both had like really hard lives. So yeah, Vinnie Jones, he was was he the one that was in Gone in sixty seconds too? Yes, the... yes, he was the the Creepy. speechless one in Gone in sixty yeah. seconds. Okay. Yeah, he's that he's scary. The, yeah, he is fucking terrifying. And you should have seen him play football. He kicked the shit out of everyone. Like 
back in the 80s and 90s, people were still quite dangerous on a football pitch, but Vinnie Jones was something else. He looked like he would kill you. And he probably did it. He probably would have done if you'd given him a weapon. <laughs> um, so Paul Gascoigne was named PFA Young Player of the Year and listed on the PFA Team of the Year in 1987-88. However, his period at Newcastle coincided with a period of unrest and instability at the club, which left the club unable to hold on to such a gifted youngster. Paul Gascoigne promised Sir Alex Ferguson that he would sign for Manchester United Ferguson, uh, kind of safe in the knowledge that he was getting the best young player in the world, duly went on holiday to Malta, expecting to sign Gascoigne. While on holiday, he picked up a newspaper that said that Paul Gascoigne had signed for Tottenham Hotspur for a British record fee of £2.2 million. Quite, <laughs> quite... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, we've got a really cool comment here. Uh, quite dangerous. It was an understatement. I played football back in the 80s, yeah. Football was a very different game back when I was a kid. You could kick people and kind of punch them and get away with it. Uh, not so much now. Uh, so Gascoigne signed for Tottenham for a British record fee of £2.2 million. In his 1999 autobiography, Gascoigne, sorry, Ferguson claimed that Gascoigne was wooed into signing for Spurs after they bought a house for his impoverished family. Gascoigne in his autobiography states that after he was given his £100,000 signing on fee, he spent 70000 of it buying and renovating a property for his mother and father. That is fucking adorable. Yeah, it is. He bought his mum a house. He bought his mum a house straight away, his mum and dad. Also, he was on £8,000 a week, which is quite a jump from £120 a week. A uh, to put that put that into um kind of inflationary states for people who might be listening that's twenty thousand dollars in today's money a week which and, and also you know we twenty thousand dollars we you know athletes are on stupid money now you hear about it but like eight thousand pounds a week back then bought you a lot of stuff that's you know and actually being from where he was in the northeast you could have bought a row of houses for eight thousand pounds at the time, you could have bought like four or five terraced houses. I'm not that's kidding. A, that's a good come up. Yeah, that is. Um, even when I went to university up there, you could still get like a terraced house for like thirty thousand pounds. It was, it's incredibly. The property is still cheap up there, relatively compared to the rest of the UK. Um, uh, basically, he he looked after his family for the rest of his life just off his first contract. So that's that's really good nice. for him. In his first season at White Hot Lane with Tottenham Hotspur, uh, Gascoigne helped Terry Venables' Tottenham Hotspur team to sixth in the first division, scoring seven goals in 37 appearances. They rose to third place in 89-90, to 90, but were still 16 points behind champions Liverpool. Yes. On the 26th of September, he scored four goals in a 5-0 victory against Hartlepool United in the second round of the 1990 Football League Cup. He was named the BBC Sports Personality of the Year in 1990, which is kind of like the highest unofficial honour you can get in this country as like a, a sport, as an athlete. Like in the okay. past, you think about any successful athlete, like maybe it's a huge Olympian or a, a boxer, like Lennox Lewis has won it, or like, I guess, like multiple footballers won it, like golfers, Nick Faldo's won it, and... Like kind of big names in pretty much every sport that have existed have have won this thing. It, it's a big honor. Um, but he it was he basically got it because of the World Cup. And at the World Cup, England got to the semi-final. Paul Gascoigne got booked playing against Germany, which meant that because he had a certain number of yellow cards, he couldn't play in the next game, which if England oh. got through would have been the final. And he immediately burst into tears on the pitch. Oh. And uh, yeah, and there's a famous clip 
of a striker called um oh my god i can't believe i've forgotten his name now um uh oh jesus anyway striker went up to him <laughs> that, that that's going to drive me mad went up to him and said paul are you all right like it wasn't caught like the the audio wasn't caught on camera but he put his shoulder his arm around paul gascoigne's shoulder and paul just went oh, i'm gonna fucking kill someone and then like oh it's gary lineker gary lineker looked to where the manager was which also happened to be the whole camera and just went <laughs> like that <laughs> and everyone was like uh yeah maybe we need to get him off the pitch before he does like slide into someone uh what's this just a side note after football i went on to karate in the late 80s wow that is that is like an 80s transition right there karate holy shit yeah i, f I feel like that's a lot of the 80s movies in yeah that's even in the yeah. u.s soccer <laughs> and Soccer, well, football and and karate football. yeah karate was so fucking big and fighting um, russians yes russians also <laughs> russians and nicaraguans invading the us that was apparently a thing um gascoigne was named on the pfa team of the year and uh helped tottenham to reach the fa cup final he scored the opening goal of a 3-1 victory over arsenal at wembley with a free kick and one of the six goals he scored in the competition Spurs at this juncture were under significant financial strain with a huge £10 million debt, which is the equivalent in today's money of $75 million. That's Ooh. that's a big fucking debt, even by today's standards. Yeah. Um, with Spurs being tied to massive debt, they had to hire a financial advisor called Nat Solomon. Solomon strongly urged for selling Gascoigne to Italian club Lazio to keep the vultures at bay. Going into the final against Nottingham Forest, Spurs had um, readily accepted, uh, sorry, already accepted an offer from Lazio and Gascoigne was all, had already agreed for personal terms to join the Italian club. The deal would be worth £8.5 million uh, to Tottenham, which would almost clear their entire debt. His final was to end in injury, however, as 15 minutes into the game, he committed a, a ridiculously dangerous knee-high challenge on Gary Charles and ruptured his own cruciate ligaments in his right knee. Not only did he injure Gary Charles, he injured himself with his ah. aggression. Yeah, it was one of the gross... And actually... If he hadn't had injured himself, he'd have been sent off. The very fact that he didn't injure himself was one of the reasons he stayed on the pitch, amazingly. So, um, yeah, he missed the entire 91 to 92 season while he recovered, suffering a further knee injury in late 91 when he got drunk and slipped on beer in a nightclub in Newcastle. Uh, yeah, kept, <laughs> kept him out for even longer. His nightlife problems are starting to become like a bit of an issue at this point. It's the start. We'll get to the rest later. Um, the saga over Gascoigne's proposed transfer of Lazio dominated the tabloid press throughout 1991, um, <clears throat> often overshadowing the key national news of the time, namely the recession and rise in unemployment. People were still talking about Paul Gascoigne when people were losing their jobs, although the broadsheet newspapers generally kept the stories to the back page. So it wasn't like, oh, look, we're losing money. But also Paul Gascoigne's gone out to a nightclub. Um <laughs> And very this, and eventually the transfer was completed. Um, and Terry Venables, uh, speaking at the time, the deal with Lazio agreed. I'm very pleased for Paul, but it's like watching your mother-in-law drive off the cliff with your new car. So that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. Gascoigne well, eventually, joined, yeah. <laughs> uh, it didn't quite work out though, because Gascoigne eventually joined Lazio for a fee of five point five million. 
So that's that's three million less than they initially agreed because he his fucking knee exploded. Um, running around slipping on beer and shit. Yeah, he's running out getting pissed. Um, that's not going to change <laughs> when he gets to Italy. Uh, that's the equivalent to fifteen million pounds in twenty twenty two, about seventeen million dollars. He received a two million pound signing on fee and signed a contract worth twenty two thousand pounds a week, which is forty six thousand dollars a week in today's money. A huge that's sum of bad. money. That's yeah. not too bad. It's not bad. And again, 1990, 22,000 pounds a week. You can buy the planet. You can buy a country for that money. That's that's crazy money. Um, he failed to fully settle in Italy and was beset by negative media interest, which was not helped by the numerous occasions he punched reporters. Um, he was he was basically Tommy Lee and Bjork combined at this point. So whenever an Italian <laughs> journalist approached him, he would try and kill them. He was kind of a bit out of his out of his tree with hey. like, very strange decision making at this point. See, you yeah. gotta mind your own business. You leave them limbo. <laughs> Do not approach this man. This man will punch you. Um, and then there was a time when an Italian journalist had the temerity to approach him and ask him how he felt at being left out of the starting team when they were playing eleven. Uh, when they were playing Juventus, sorry. And his response was to burp into the microphone on live television. <laughs> He okay. was fined. Not refined. Nine, no. <laughs> he was fined £9,000 for that, making it the single most expensive burp in human history. So, make I feel that money. It's worth it. Yeah, you know, do whatever you want. Sometimes violence is effective, according to Pytos. Um, I mean, I guess so. But if you're getting fined for burping into a microphone, probably don't punch journalists because if you get fined nine grand for burping, imagine what a fist in the face will cause. Um, yeah, he, he, it's funny, it's interesting. He was really well liked by the club's fans because they were the, the team had a generally like working class group, um, who you know they loved his carefree working class aura that he had because he just didn't care about anything, just do whatever the fuck he wanted. Um, but the club's owner, Sergio Cragnotti, kind of resented him for this, but also resented him because when he first met Paul Gascoigne. Gascoigne had been learning Italian, and he did surprisingly well. He learned Italian quite quickly. And the first thing he said to the owner was, Tua figlia, grande tete, which roughly translates to, your daughter, big tits. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that was the first that's a way to make said. an impression. That's the way you make your impression. <laughs> oh, you're paying my, my salary? Oh, your daughter's got an enormous tit. Uh, <laughs> Paul Gascoigne is an absolute fucking idiot. Um, he broke uh, so yeah, he broke his cheekbone whilst on international duty in April 1999. That's that's one injury I never want to experience. Um, and had to play the remaining games of the season in a mask, which made him look like a drunk phantom of the opera, basically <laughs> uh, running around, <laughs> running around, drunks sliding into people, trying to take their knees out, looking like a psychopath. Um, Lazio ended the campaign in fifth place, which was considered a success as it meant qualification for European competition for the first time in 16 years. And the majority of that is because of Paul Gascoigne and his absolute ridiculous play. He was very, he was just, let me point this out, he was an incredible footballer, but he was a danger to himself and other people around him at this point. Um, 
he fell badly out of shape before the 93-94 season and was told by the manager Dino Zoff to lose two stone, about 28 pounds, by the start of the campaign, or else he would lose his first team place. Gascoigne, who had no ego about stuff like, how dare he say this, I'm the star player, went on an extreme weight loss diet and succeeded in shedding the excess weight and another two pounds in the space of like a month and a half. Dude, that's not even healthy. That's that's scary. That's like UFC weight cut kind yeah. of levels, to that's be a, honest with you. That's Wells, a lot. La- yeah, that's <laughs> a lot of weight. Wells Latan kicks people in the head for fun, then getting interviewed. Still, he's obsessed by Taekwondo. That's true. Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who is a giant of a human being at six foot five, still does kick people in the head to this very day and gets away with it because it's Zlatan Ibrahimovic. There's this aura of personality in professional sports. Sometimes people get away with stuff because of who they are. So yeah. I feel like if you're six foot five, you might accidentally kick people in the head. I yeah, he he and he's also very <laughs> agile. So yeah, that's that's likely to happen when you just lift your leg up. Um so <laughs> yeah, back to Paul Gascoigne. Um in one spell out injured, Dino Zoff told Paul Gascoigne to go on holiday to recuperate, which actually is kind of like a nice thing to do, but unfortunately the last thing you should do is give Paul Gascoigne free time. Because Gascoigne explained to Zoff that he didn't want to go on holiday, but Zoff made him go. To the surprise of nobody at Lazio's fitness staff, Gascoigne arrived back from holiday grossly overweight uh, because he'd been eating fucking Mars bars the whole time. In 1994, Zdenek <laughs> Zeman arrived from Foggia as uh, a coach for Lazio, and Gascoigne hated him. Uh, Zeman was a coach noted for his use of whistle in training sessions, so not just like end of action, right now I want to talk to you, he would whistle all the fucking time, like he's at some sort of pilled-up lunatic at a rave or something. It's The whistle's okay. going off everywhere. <laughs> uh, Gascoigne did not like this. One session, Zeman had found that he'd misplaced his whistle, couldn't find it anywhere, searched everywhere. Eventually, he went out onto the field and found that it was around the neck of an overly aggressive goose who frequented the Lazio training ground. That was Paul Gascoigne. That's awesome. Yeah, try and get your fucking whistle back now, you prick. Um, this goose will peck your eyes out. In April 1994, he broke his leg in training while attempting to tackle Alessandro Nesta in a, another overly aggressive tackle. He needs to stop doing these. He keeps breaking his fucking legs. And that was in practice, t- dude. I know. Back it off Calm the fuck down. Yeah. <laughs> Lev, you're a good storyteller. This is a good stream. Thank you so much for Billy. We're glad that you're joining us. Give us a follow and stuff. Um, it, yeah, so he's broken his leg, and um, upon his recovery, he was disgruntled with uh, the stern approach of Zerman and that fucking whistle of his. And both the club and player decided to part ways at the end of the 1994-95 season. He swiftly joined Glasgow Rangers in the Scottish First Division. Rangers manager Walter Smith flew to visit Gascoigne at his home in Italy, uh, in Rome, uh, in the countryside. He had a sprawling estate which was near wine country, probably not a good location. Uh, Smith explained, he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to see you. He said, what is it you're wanting? I said, I'm here to see if you'll come and play for me at Rangers. He said, I all right. Uh, And that's the negotiation (laughs) over. Uh, Yeah, it's pretty good. Gascoigne signed for Rangers in July 1995 for a then club record fee of £4.3 million on wages of £15,000 a week. He made an immediate impact in the fifth league game of the 1995-96 season, the old firm fixture between Celtic and Rangers. Now, Celtic and Rangers, basically one of the two of them 
always wins the league. There's okay. nobody else has won the league but Rangers or Celtic in about well, like forty years at this point. Like it's stupid. Um, <laughs> he scored a goal after running almost the full length of the pitch to get on the end of a pass in a breakaway move. It provided it proved vital as it was the only match that uh, Celtic lost during the entire campaign, and they lost the entire season by three points because Rangers won one more game than them. So oh. that one goal sealed the league. That's how fucking dominant these two teams were. Damn. On the 30th of December, Gascoigne was booked by referee Dougie Smith after picking up Smith's yellow card from the ground as he just dropped it and jokingly booking the referee during a match against Hibernian. Dougie Smith is a fucking killjoy. Yeah, bitch. that's that's an overreaction. Kick yeah, that is over something He's funny. He's just being a prankster. <laughs> Calm down. If you saw some of the pranks this guy does to other people, you might think he got off light. Um, Rangers went on to win the Scottish Premier Division, clinching the title in the penultimate game of the season against Aberdeen at Ibrox. Gascoigne scored a hat-trick, including two solo efforts. Um, Rangers won the double, as they also won the Scottish Cup by knocking out Celtic before beating Hearts 5-1 in the final. He scored 19 goals in 42 appearances in all competition and was named both PFA, Scottish Player of the Year, and the SWFA, Footballer of the Year. No idea what that is. Um, 19 goals in 42 appearances for a midfielder and like a central midfielder. Like he does, he'll run forwards, but they do not score that many goals. Like if you get 10 out of a central midfielder in a season, that's a good year. But 19, fuck me, that's a lot. See, I um, have no idea how any of it works. So I appreciate I, you breaking that down. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so like to score a goal almost every other game, um, that, that would be a good return for a striker. Okay. Like if someone right the way up front, but for someone in the in midfield to score that as well, that's like that's really rare. Rangers won the title again in 96-97, their ninth in succession. Gascoigne claimed hat tricks against Kilmarnock and Motherwell and ended that campaign with 17 goals in 34 games, another really good return. However, during the season, manager Walter Smith and assistant Archie Knox became increasingly concerned over Gascoigne's reliance on alcohol to get him through the season. The Jurors won another double when they uh, beat Hearts in the final uh, of the Scottish League Cup, 4-3, with Gascoigne scoring twice and Ali McCoist claiming the other two goals. They were both close friends and unfortunately heavy drinking buddies. So now do you think he's good. drinking just because he's young and crazy he's and not, athletic or he just hurts from breaking not, himself? I, at this point, he's no longer young. At this point, he's like 27, 28. So you're not a kid anymore. You're yeah. a man with a family kind of need to, you know, and, and it was getting to the point where he would drink so much that he couldn't train the next day because he was being violently sick so he wouldn't train and then he'd show up on match day and just put in these beautiful performances um and you know that was you know that was not going to last forever um for billy yes if you i don't stream anymore but i got followers yes please do host us that would be that would be wonderful thank you if you wouldn't mind doing that we'd, we'd love a little host that'd be wonderful um gascoigne so <laughs> however um, going back to him at Rangers. In 1997, young Italian player Gennaro Gattuso joined Rangers. He was welcomed to Ibrox by Gascoigne, who took a massive dump in one of Gattuso's socks as a prank. See, Welcome to worse. the club, kid. That's worse than fake booking the ref. Oh, yeah. That's like... <laughs> 
and that's the standard you will soon find out from this guy. Um, in a game against bitter rivals Celtic, Walter Smith begged Gascoigne to translate into Italian the instructions that he didn't want the Italian to get booked because Gattuso was a bit dirty, told him to calm down and to not get himself into trouble in the game, otherwise they would lose. Gascoigne proceeded to tell Gattuso the exact opposite, um, uh, just for shits and giggles, which (laughs) resulted in in Gattuso. He told him to do exactly what he was doing in training, which was kicking the shit out of everybody. Um, Resulted in a flying leg to the uh, leg kick to the sternum of a Celtic player within 30 seconds, fucking street fighter level, Oi. fucking yeah, like <laughs> you know, straight <laughs> through the fucking air. He was sent off, banned for three matches, but protested because he said he was just doing what the manager told him. No, you weren't. Gascoigne tricked you, you poor yeah, sod. Yeah, that's the worst translator ever. That, yeah, he's, he's a bit prick, isn't he? Um, <laughs> however, Gascoigne would also buy Gattuso his club suits because at this point in time, they always had to show up wearing suits, they couldn't just walk in wearing, you know, right? What is it? The kind of shit that they get sponsored by Nike to wear and all that stuff now. You know, they didn't wear those, they had to wear suits everywhere they went. So, Gascoigne bought all of um, the club suits under the pretense that Rangers were paying for them. Gattuso didn't find out until months later that Gascoigne had dropped nearly £1,000 on multiple suits for this ca- this kid and never asked for anything in return, never asked for the money back, never even told him, just bought in these suits and told the tailor to say that Rangers had bought them for him. Well, that's nice of him. He's nice. This is the weird thing. He's either nice or terrifying. Yeah, just... Don't get on his bad side. Do Laugh not at know. his jokes. Laugh Don't at get his mad jokes. when he shits Take in your locker. For a drink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if he shits in your sock, just, just <laughs> maybe take it away. Don't go at him, otherwise you might get headbutted. In January 1998, Gascoigne courted serious controversy when he mined playing the flute. That might not sound like much, but we'll get to it now. Symbolic of the flute-playing Orange Order marches while warming up as a substitute during an old firm match at Celtic Park. Rangers Football Club are a mostly Protestant club. Celtic are a mostly Catholic club. Um, And he was deliberately stoking sectarian violence, which these clubs had very close ties to communities in Northern Ireland. And at this point in time, Northern Ireland, the tensions are huge. The IRA are still incredibly active and bombing people across the UK. Uh, major cities killing people. The political assassinations are still being attempted, you know, at this point. So it was a very dangerous thing. And people are dying by the dozen at this point. And he decided to stoke sectarian violence by miming the flute that um, Orange Order marches do, which are hugely controversial things that take still take place in Scotland. And there's riots and stuff it's really bad it's like imagine i mean i can't really compare them to the kkk but it's that level of animosity right so, yeah you don't want to yeah <clears throat> you know that's, th- th- that kind of march you know that's not a nice thing to do no that was i think he you know he'd already made the gesture during a gold cell a gold celebration um shortly after joining the club in 1995 and claimed that he was ignorant of the meaning but i don't I don't buy it. I think he was doing it to rile up the fans and the other the other club. I think it was like yeah. a gamesmanship thing. That uh, yeah, that would be kind of like running into like scoring a touchdown and then throwing up a 
Hail Hitler thing. Yeah, I, it's not far off. You know, it's like it's a deliberate provocation, and to mm. claim ignorance is not a good excuse. Anyway, he was fined twenty thousand pounds by Rangers after the incident. So that's like a, a week and a half's wage. It's a fair chunk of change. He also, unfortunately, as a result of his stupidity, received actual death threats from IRA members and had to have uh, security guards as a result of it. Um, not good. Not good. When no. the IRA wants to kill you, that's kind of not a good place to be. Um, the 1997-98 season was less successful. Gascoigne scored just three goals in 28 games and was sold on while Rangers failed to win any trophies after he departed, losing the league title to Celtic and the Scottish Cup final to Hearts. From here, his club career takes a massive slide. He he gets paid lots of money because of his reputation and his international standing, um, but his injuries start to stack up. He does really stupid things and gets himself injured, like he elbowed an opposition midfielder, George Boateng, in the head, and Boateng was fine, but Gascoigne broke his arm. So uh, yeah, that's that he he does these things and it ends up injuring him. I don't know why he keeps doing them. Um, yeah, it sh it should also be noted uh, that he's an England legend at this stage in his career. I, I mentioned the the crying incident earlier on, which showed like his real passion for his country. He's got uh, I think it's fifty eight caps for his country and about twenty something goals. So again, a huge return for a central midfielder. Um, he also um, scored a legendary goal in the Euro 1996 um, group stages against Scotland and celebrated it by lying down on the floor with his arms out and his head slightly raised as his friends, his his um, his teammates ran up, grabbed their water bottles and sprayed his face and mouth with water. Um, a week earlier, the paparazzi had caught him and his England teammates out in a nightclub getting absolutely hammered and they all lifted him in the air and poured booze into his oh, mouth. So he nice. was reenacting this thing. <laughs> it should also be pointed out that that paparazzi thing, uh, they caught him doing that 24 hours before an international fixture, getting uh, champagne poured down his throat. So he did not give a shit about turning up drug teams. He is... <laughs> Too much of a partier. Um, Gascoigne married his long-term girlfriend. Uh, we're going on to his personal life now. He married his long-term girlfriend, Cheryl Fales, in Hatfield, Hertfordshire, in July 1996, after they'd been together for around six years. He later admitted to violence towards Cheryl during their marriage. They divorced in early 1999. In 2009, Cheryl published a tell-all book entitled Stronger, My Life Surviving Gaza. That's not a good title oh. for a book really when you're Paul Gascoigne um, they have a son together and he adopted Cheryl's two children from her first marriage so it, ne never any complaints about him as a father but ne not really a great husband unfortunately in November 2008 Gascoigne was faced with bankruptcy over a £200,000 tax bill that he had not uh, he had not paid he hadn't even filed tax returns for more than two years and on the 25th of May 2011, he avoided being declared bankrupt by the High Court in London, despite still owing £32,000. He sold off a bunch of memorabilia to kind of get that paid off. It's the O.J. Simpson way, only, you know, Gascoigne yeah. sold it instead of stealing it. Right. Um, <laughs> <at gun> point. <laughs> in Gaza, my story, and in being Gaza, tackling my demons, he refers to treatments he had for bulimia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder and alcoholism the books also describe his addictive personality which has led him to develop addictions to varying severities 
um, to alcohol, cocaine, chain smoking, gambling, high caffeine energy drinks, exercise, and junk food. Literally uh, everything other than sex he was addicted to. So. I feel like if you drop cocaine off of there, um, yeah, I can really relate with this guy. <laughs> I, know. It's, I, I think a lot of these have been... You know, it's interesting because certain things he found easy to drop alcohol, he could never get off. Um, high caffeine energy, energy drinks, he got off because there was a risk of having a heart attack. He drank yeah. them so much that he was approaching a heart attack thing. The junk food thing, that's just like, you know, lack of education, I think, from a young age and being signed as a young footballer and just like, oh, I'll eat shit for breakfast. You know, that's that's it. But chain smoking gambling alcohol cocaine a lot of those are coping mechanisms i mean all of them are coping mechanisms but i think certainly some of that is um there's more to come sorry it gets sadder before it gets happier since okay. retiring from football gascoigne has entered rehab for alcohol eight times and been arrested multiple times for drunk driving drug possession assault and even sexual assault which he was cleared of but when you look at the case and his admissions he probably shouldn't have been cleared of it. Um, his friends and family have tried to pull together around him and help him financially and help him get through rehab the multiple times he's been in. But at the age of 55, which he is now, he looks 20 years older than that, and his speech is basically constantly slurred. He sounds like Ozzy Osbourne because of the alcohol abuse he's put his body through over the years. And actually, they were saying, coupled with... The fact that he was an exercise addict, he basically dehydrated himself in two different ways and nearly killed his liver in, yeah. by doing that. Yeah, that'll happen. In an effort to end this on a high note, I want to talk about some of Paul Gascoigne's legendary pranks. And there's, fuck me, there's a lot. I've just picked a few and there's still like shitloads of them. Gaza had established himself in Newcastle's first team by the time Peter Jackson signed from Bradford in 1986. Jacko was given a brand new sponsored car um, from a Vauxhall dealership. He was the first player to have a company car, former defender John Anderson tells FFT. One day, when Gaza was out injured and everybody else was training, he tucked a fish into the underside of the passenger seat and the fish rotted. The smell got worse, but Peter didn't know where it was coming from. The whiff was unbearable. He kept taking the car back to the garage, but they couldn't find the source until one day it went for a full valet and the bottom of the seat fell out and a, a thousands of maggots were left in the place of where the fish had been. Yeah. That's the well, level of pranking we're dealing with here. That's straight out of grumpier old men. That's yes. Gustafson. That's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> There's more. Mirandinho was the first Brazilian to play in England when he joined Newcastle in 1987 and quickly became mates with Paul Gascoigne. That was a mistake. As well as the victim of several japes. During my first trip with the squad, we were coming back from Norwich and it was normal procedure to stop for fish and chips, Mirandinho told uh, the newspaper. It was taking longer than usual for that to happen. So Gascoigne told me to go and tell the manager, Winnie McFowl, um and say mr winnie i'm fucking starving uh i went to the front of the bus said exactly those words and everyone burst out laughing i was fined as a result gascoigne also duped me into telling the squad that the english word for wednesday was wank day <laughs> <laughs> then borrowed my car and crashed it into a field 
The next day, Mirandinho said he asked for his car back. Gaza took him to it, stuck in a fence with the back wheel nearly touching the front wheel. That's oh, a bad fucking accident. Damn. Yeah, that's, yeah, he's a, a crazy bastard at this point. That's One not evening. A prank. That's not a prank. <laughs> that's theft. <laughs> theft and motor damage. Um, one evening, Julian Dix tried to get me to sneak into town and go to the pub, and I didn't feel like it. They were sharing a hotel room at this point, and uh, Gascoigne said that he went on and on. He wouldn't let me go to sleep. He kept trying to get me to go into town to go and have a pint. The next day, <clears throat> when he was asleep, I got my own back. I bought some fireworks and went into his bathroom, lit a banger, and set it off. The noise was incredible. I rushed into his room shouting, evacuate, evacuate, bomb blast, bomb blast. Julian Dix jumped up and ran out into the corridor, completely stark naked, and ran downstairs to the lobby. That's, that's a yeah. bit... It got, it got out of hand. It did. It really <laughs> did get out of hand. And, I'm uh, tripped out by all these last names, though. There's Julia Fails, and this guy's Dix, and this... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a lot of really funny names. Um, I went in. Uh, so when Gascoigne was en route to training, he drove past a zoo. This is going to go badly. Um, I went in and said, "Hi, I'm Paul Gascoigne. Can I borrow an ostrich, please? Oh, I'd like to take it to monkeys. training." Yeah. <laughs> and they let him. I put on a number eight shirt. I put a number eight shirt on the ostrich and drove it to the training ground with it in the back seat. It had a neck like Steve Sedgley. That's harsh. Um, I, wa I waited until the lads were on the pitch warming up and then said, guys, I've got a new player for you and sent the ostrich out. The lads were running side to side and the ostrich was chasing them down behind them, doing the exact same thing. But the worst thing was the lads finished training at 1 p.m. I didn't finish until 5 p.m. Have you ever tried to catch an ostrich? <laughs> got his own self, huh? It's got you. It's your fault. You got to take care of it now. Um, and think of uh, the clout you have to have to have to just swing into a zoo and be like, "Hey, let me get an ostrich." Can I have an ostrich, please? I'm Paul Gascoigne. <laughs> yeah, Gazzy, you can have an ostrich. Don't get it too drunk. Um, yeah, and it gets weird. I mean, there's a load, load more. But um, you know, at the start, when you have like these, like when the lineups for any sport is announced. And you'll have maybe like a talking head where they'll say like so and so and where which college they played for, say if it's the draft or or something like that. Or they'll like maybe in some sports they'll walk towards the camera and like cross their arm and do like blue steel like that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. Um, that's what they wanted them to do in the 1990 uh, World Cup, and they had they wanted the players to mouth their names so that the announcer would then say their name like in the stadium and on the TV. And it was kind of like a, it was a clever gimmick. So they had to mind their own name without actually saying it. So Gascoigne was told to do that, and he mouthed fucking wanker to the camera. <laughs> and he hoped no one noticed. And guess what? Nobody did, because it was in Italy. And it was sent to all the broadcasters around the world who just assumed that it had been checked. And his mime swearing was seen by over one billion people worldwide going, fucking wanker. Just That's like, a good one, yeah. though. That's well played, sir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, during his time in Italy, Gasser was uh, was given his own personal security guards in Rome. A great idea until one of them mistook him for a burglar and pointed a gun at his head. Um, eventually, he managed to talk them down. I was like, no, no, listen to me, accent. I'm not a burglar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they did, uh, on one occasion, prove to be useful. 
all of Lazio's bodyguards worked in uh, for Italy's leading security firm, who also looked after the country's money, said Gascoigne. When I found out that their job was guarding a huge bank vault, I got them to sneak me in with Jimmy Five Bellies. I sat on uh, this huge mountain of money, about £50 million, and started chucking wads of cash in the air. Eventually, I got bored and started throwing them at Jimmy. So, oh, jeez. Throwing huge chunks of change at his mate. Okay. <laughs> How... <laughs> I got to do that. At some point yeah. in my life, I want to sit on a huge mountain of money just and just a, throw a it. Money angel. Yeah. I want a Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, you want to throw mountains of cash in the air. That is, he, he does have like the impulses of a child sometimes, but yeah, it is really interesting. I'll take an ostrich. I'll take an ostrich, please. Yes, and suppose... Ooh. Um, yeah. See, now, every yeah. time I hear ostrich, I immediately am thinking of that show Letter Kenny. Yeah. I don't know if you've watched it, but... I have. I've heard of it. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly, <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, I know about that. Uh, so Dino Zoff was Lazio's manager when Gaza moved to Serie A and was permanently kept on his toes by his star man. One time he showed up naked in the hall of the hotel when we were away on a retreat. It was a yoga retreat and Gaza was just running around naked. Um, then he did the same thing on the team bus. When we were going through a dark tunnel, he got undressed and sat next to Dino Zoff, who nearly jumped out of the seat. Uh, Some of this stuff is hilarious, but weird. Yeah. Some of it is hilarious, some of it's weird, some of it's dangerous. And this is, uh, th these last two are, are kind of all three. Um, I went to a posh restaurant and ordered lobster because I had seen they had a massive lobster tank, he revealed. I pointed to the one I wanted, but they were taking so long. I thought, what are they doing? I'll just get it myself. So I dived into the tank in my best suit. It took me a while swimming around to catch the one that I fancied. But when I finally did, I hooked it. Uh, I hooked it out and said, there's the fucker I want. And then I <laughs> ate it in my dripping wet suit. Oh, geez. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, that's an actual scene in, in the first um, Venom film, as I remember, when fucking uh, Eddie Brock just sits in the tank of uh, lobsters to cool down. Um, and and uh, dead lobsters are one thing. A live swan is quite another, as former Rangers midfielder Ian Durant remembered. What is it with this guy and animals? We were playing golf at Loch Lomond when Gaza disappeared with into some bushes and came out clutching a huge swan by the neck, said Durant. Don't ask me how he managed to catch the thing, but he got it into the car and it was attacking Ali McCoist. Good Lord. <laughs> See, he had practice catching an ostrich. Yes, exactly. A swan's nothing when you've tackled a fucking ostrich. Um, you might go down the park and see a swan from 20 yards away. It looks idyllic and looks majestic, the midfielder explained. Three yards away, it's enormous, and it's squaring up for you, squaring up to you looking for a fight. Uh, we were in the back of the Range Rover driving around at, at insane speeds, and it was chaos. The swan was going mad. It attacked Ali McCoist and caused £22,000 worth of damage to the car. Ooh, fuck damn. me, man. That, and that's, that swan got busy. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that's. Uh, I just want to end with, like, three stories I know that weren't included in these 50 that were listed, that I, <laughs> I only copied some over. Um, Jimmy Fivebellies, uh, Paul Gascoigne used to kind of semi-torture him a little bit. Like, they went out, they came back drunk one night, and they'd stopped off at a very famous place to get huge pies huge meat pies Gascoigne's yeah. Jimmy was off being sick in the bathroom 
And Gascoigne opened his pie up, took the pie out, smeared the meat section in cat food and put it back in the pie crust and then microwaved both pies. And he gave it to Five Bellies and said, oh, how's your pie, Jimmy? He's like, oh, it's fucking delicious. Oh, that's really nice. Is that this jelly? Mm, yummy. Um, so, yeah, he made his Ugh. mate eat cat food. Um, that's mean, man. That's kind of mean. Yeah. But he also supported his mate financially. So I guess he kind of felt he could. I, I don't think that's fair. I but feel anyway. like he's the Steve-O of soccer. Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's Paul Gascoigne. Um, quite a long one. I'm sorry I went on, but um, it was kind of, he had. I mean, I've only covered like maybe 25% of his life. There's so much other stuff in there. Psychotic behavior, stupid pranks, drunken behavior. There was what apparently he was out with uh, radio presenter Chris Evans, not the actor, British radio presenter. And like he saw a, a bus driver and the bus driver was like, hey, Gaza, nice to see you. And they were in Marble Arch, which is a famous, very famous part of London, very narrow streets. And Gaza shook the guy's hand and then jumped into the bus driver's window, pushed him out of the seat and drove a bus full of people around Marble Arch for 20 minutes in the center yeah. of London in rush hour. This guy just lived jackass. Basically, yes, he was jackass before that was yeah. even a thing. Without so I the have cameras. To ask you, yes, <laughs> without the cameras. Although there was sometimes paps around, but he just did it for the fun of it. So I have to ask you uh, your thoughts and rating for Paul Gascoigne as an idiot. Well, I mean, I kind of like him. Like the I pranks... know, he's another likable idiot, isn't he, to a certain extent? I mean, the, the violence and possible mm. assault and stuff, you know, yeah. sucks. Yeah. Um, God, he was kind of dumb though, as far as like hurting himself <laughs> yeah. constantly, and mm -hmm. obviously it probably had a lot to do with drinking to excess yeah. and not taking not, care of himself. Yeah, and also not looking. I guess counseling and uh, psychotherapy wasn't really in that world, in his world at that time. But you just imagine if he'd not been such a psychopath on the football pitch and injured himself so much, and also gotten help for his demons he would have played a lot longer and probably not be as like withered as he is now. I mean, it's, it's really bad how old I got to hope now. that he would have at least uh, pulled off some of the amazing pranks still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause that's like, uh, my favorite part of this whole thing. I know. I, I <laughs> as, as soon as I thought about it, I was like Paul Gascoigne. And then I remembered the multiple things he did. Um, yeah. So kind of an amazing guy it reminds me a little bit of maradona in that he's one of these flawed geniuses who you know couldn't really control his demons but was like a, a majestic footballer one of the greatest this country has ever produced but has a real dark side that's never really been taken care of yeah and uh, honestly i'm kind of like at a loss on what i would i would i'd even want to rate him like if you were to rate him what would you think I'm um, gonna just steal your answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, he didn't kill anyone. That's let's you know start right there. That's that's the metric that re immediately brings it down to like into the seventies. Um, he was reckless, and he he was caring, but sometimes slightly cruel and vicious. Um, it's the real dichotomy of man. I would probably be somewhere in the 70s because he did squander a lot of potential and could have maybe, I mean, the, the bankruptcy thing, he earned millions of pounds during and after his career and he squandered it all. It's just, you know. Yeah, that, that's, that is pretty dumb. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, not, you, not dumb like in a mean way. I'm not being mean to him. Yeah, no, um, no, exactly, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd give him a fair C. A 76 seems good. Yeah, seven, I'll take a 76. He's um, he's a complex character, is Paul Gascoigne, and it, it's kind of worth, uh, if anybody listens to this, like just there are a number of different things you can view with Paul Gascoigne. You can view some of the interviews he did because he's incredibly charismatic in a frenetic, insane kind of way. But also some of his footballing highlights, like you can, I mean, there are multiple different examples you can go online and search for. Um, he was a magician on the football pitch and also a psychopath. Um, but he was, he's incredibly likable. And that's the thing with Paul Gascoigne is that people will kind of let people like him get away with terrible or bad things because they are likable and people root for them. You know, this guy yeah. came from nothing and built an incredible life for him, looked after his family, but at the same time, didn't really look after himself. And that's the saddest part of all of this is that if he just given some of the support he gave to everyone else to himself, he probably would have been in a better place. You know, yeah. look yeah. after yourselves, people. That's the real story here is as much as it's good to care for other people and, and try and help other people, you know, charity starts at home. Look after yourself. And then look after everyone else. Get yourself sorted, and then you can, you know, make the world a better place. So for sure, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I, I've really enjoyed. I really enjoyed uh, researching this because he's such an interesting character, Paul Gascoigne. Um, how was it, kind of looking into the darkest depths of the math, the mafia for Mad Sam? See, I always love looking into uh, mafia stuff, and casino is like one of my favorite movies so when i found yeah. out that this guy was connected to spalatro i was like oh yes, yes. <laughs> i'll have some of that yes yeah. i love casino as well that's a great film um, yeah so no i had a good time with it and i i always love when you're doing footballers because i don't know <laughs> shit about them so i learn all kinds of stuff yeah um i think the uh the well with kind of insane football is kind of running a little bit dry at this point because like the, there was a window from like the late 60s to like the late 80s where um, like glamour came into football. It was no longer like a working man's game and people started earning big money. But like at a certain point in the 90s, football became a bit more structured, civilized, less characters became available, less controversial figures, really to a certain extent. It just became more about making money and the brand and stuff like that. Whereas I feel like a sport like baseball still generates a lot of kind of random insane interesting people yes um, to yeah. a degree but then yeah. they do stuff like um like ban him for just not liking him even though yeah. he's acquitted for like a pit this is a pitcher and i can't remember his name so um <clears throat> right yeah yeah so the, the, i, I think feel they, like they keep him from being too crazy in baseball I think so. Certainly now, um, I think up until quite reasonably recently, there was there are still plenty of stories, and some of them featured on on Netflix documentaries as well. But um, I do feel like sports, um, because of the nature of physical sport, when someone is physically gifted in a way that makes them almost superhuman, because some of these people do have superhuman reaction times, or speed, or strength, or or intelligent, like kind of in game intelligence, like Kobe Bryant had like a, a basketball brain like yeah. nothing else yeah um, peyton manning and, could read defense yeah, peyton manning. Like a psychic exactly <laughs> yeah and and that kind of level of um physical ability when you are almost seemingly superhuman people put you on such a pedestal but the problem is, is that a lot of these people who are physically developed may not have always had the kind of support 
or um, kind of, I guess, like life lessons that they should have had at that point that's made them stable as human beings. It's not always the case. I mean, someone like Pele, who is, in my mind, the greatest footballer of all time, is not really a controversial figure because he was just like, guy in Brazil, super poor, made it good, saved his money, didn't really do anything too controversial. You know, so there are examples out there of geniuses who aren't flawed. Right. The vast majority of, like, geniuses in in athletics it always seems to come with a bit of an asterisk it, you know they either had addiction problems or personal issues or, or were dangerous or whatever it might be there's there's always something there with these genius level people so yeah and i think a lot of the trauma and stuff and mm. poorness and and fighting oh, yeah. their way out is just common amongst all the sports is the people that are driven to dive into and become professionals at sports a lot of them are trying to get themselves out of horrible yep. situations yeah, and, as Paul Gascoigne was, you know, yeah. and, and living in a living with his entire family in in one room, you know, that's that's like real grinding poverty, especially for like the late seventies. Like people were struggling in the seventies in this country, but I don't know too many that would have been like five, six people in one room. Like that's real bad poverty right there. So um, yeah, the sports thing is is interesting, but. It also gives rise to great things. I, for me personally, I actually think, and this is something that I've carried through life, is that the ability to communicate a message, a clear message to multiple people is a far more impressive level of skill than anything you can physically do. Because as you know, as creatures, we are born to physically interact with the world around us and, and kind of, you know, run away from danger and get away from this and, and lift this and move that and shit like that. But the ability to communicate well to masses of people, I find far more impressive than any physical feat you can possibly imagine. If someone can, can, can kind of impart knowledge and communication to people in a clear and effective way and, and really help and influence people, that to me is, is really impressive. So like if some dudes had a podcast and, Taught people <laughs> lessons. Sorry, no, but that's shooting that's, our horns here. Yeah, we, we are. <laughs> we're pretty good at what we do. Um, so that's kind of our show. Um, this will be up almost immediately. Who's your favorite idiot? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, I think mine's probably still um, for me personally because I had so much fun covering him and talking about him. I would have to say, um, Christ's name's gone. Oh my Rick god, James. my brain. Rick James, bitch. Yeah, that's, that's exactly that's... what I was going to say. <laughs> it's so much fun talking about Rick James. Um, and also one of our more popular episodes. What about you, Derek? Who's your favorite idiot? So that's far? what I was I was going to say. Like The favorite one that you've covered is definitely Rick James. Because I love Rick James. That story was amazing. I had no yeah. idea that he was so like interwoven with all these famous people and yeah. so batshit crazy so fucking crazy it was amazing but yeah um we ha we have covered some really interesting people on this and and long will it continue we aren't going anywhere and um if you'd like to follow us on our various social media um ventures you can go to at history's greatest idiots on instagram you can go to or is it is that on twitter and, and at greatest idiots on twitter so uh, yes so it's yes. at history's greatest idiots on instagram it's at greatest idiots on twitter and if you go to um www bleh, let me just go patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots i had a, a real millennial moment there where i <laughs> included the three w's uh you can become my first ever patreon please do that we would really appreciate the help um and you know 
follow and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube and all of the other places you can get podcasts. We we do this yeah. every two weeks. Throw so. throw reviews out there. I want to see what I want to interact with people more. Yeah, yeah, you interact. Put questions on there. Yeah, we put questions on our Spotify thing. So if you go on there, there's polls and questions and all sorts. So go and interact with those. We'd love to know your feedback. Um, a weird sound that came through on my side. You sounded like a scary alien person. Oh, that uh, do I still sound alien and scary? No, it was just real quick. Uh, okay, it might have been aliens. somebody from a, another place trying to break through. Oh no, it's it's the other project <laughs> we're working on coming into our world. Um, so that's that's our show for this week. So um, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, Derek, would you like to say goodbye, please? Bye, everybody. And we will see you again in a couple of weeks. Take care now, everybody. Bye.